Now, uh, as I have said, uh, this sermon series is called The Romans Revolution, and the reason why I called it that is because um, the teaching of this book, the book of Romans, just wrecks so many common misperceptions um, that are really destructive to Christianity, but people think Christians believe or Christianity teaches. This book is a revolution because it wrecks kind of this bad understanding of Christianity and it brings a revolution to our hearts about what biblical Christianity is all about, what the true gospel is all about. It corrects these misunderstandings. And I, I have felt the need to go through this book because there are just so many misunderstandings out there about Christians, about what non-Christians have and what even Christians believe. And I've seen these misunderstandings here in the state of Utah. Um, and in polls, and in my own personal experience in Utah, uh, shows that when you claim to be a Christian, people kind of make a judgment about you. They think that you're saying, well, I am you know, morally superior or I am somehow better than you or I am more righteous or I'm a good person and maybe you're not because I'm claiming to be a Christian. And so people will oftentimes, when you just say Christian, um, I recently got a haircut, um, uh, as you can tell. Um, I was really kind of letting it grow long for the summer. And um, I was getting my hair cut at an unnamed place and the barber was doing my hair. We were having a great conversation the moment I said I was a pastor, it's like I, I, it was like I, I was explaining to her that my, her reaction would have been better if I said, I actually engage in dog fighting. I, I have a dog fighting chain. Or like I sell drugs to small children. I mean, like that was her reaction to me being a pastor. It wasn't super like warm and yeah, it was like, oh my goodness. And so people form these judgments about Christians being self-righteous and judgmental. And um, we know the world thinks this. I mean, you know, you think of um, Ned Flanders from The Simpsons, right? A little self-righteous, goody two-shoes. I'm, oh, I'm so good and pure and you're not. And Homer gets mad all the time at Ned Flanders because he is just so kind of like nauseatingly self-righteous. Um, and you think of the most obvious example is uh, Dana Carvey's church lady, who I'm very fond of quoting at this church. I grew up on Saturday Night Live, and so it just seeps into my sermons magically. Um, this character is funny because it's like a stereotypical church lady who's like ripping on how sinful everybody else is, how all these celebrities have all these problems and you know, they try to rationalize. She's like, isn't that special? Sinner. You know, she does that kind of stuff. And so you, you, you have all of these like pop culture references to how Christians believe and think that they're somehow better or morally superior to other people. And uh, this should be a really a wake-up call to us because this is how our culture views Christians and Christianity. Uh, it's, it's not about, uh, it, it's about good people trying to get better. It's about moral improvement and self-righteousness. And I, we've had, I'm sure we've all had, um, especially if you've been in the South, you've met the church lady. We've, we've met Christians who are self-righteous and condescending. But what is the greater enemy to biblical Christianity? Is it people who are bad and know it, like they know it in their guts that they are bad, or is it people who are religious who think they are good? Well, according to Paul and Jesus, the greatest enemy of Christianity and the Christian gospel is religious people who think that they're good. Now, you wouldn't get that from, TV, from the TV, but that's what the Bible teaches. You see, being religious and self-righteous actually prevents you from knowing the one true God. And... The, guy, the immoral drunk guy on the street has a better chance of knowing and having a relationship with God than a self-righteous Pharisee. 
Just claiming to be religious, by the way, and going to church does not mean that you actually know God or that you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And this really goes along with Paul's line of thought here in the book of Romans. We're going to see that Romans 1, this is kind of his, his train of thought. Romans 1, he says, okay, yeah, all you Gentiles are bad. And then he goes into something that would have shocked his readers and says, oh, surprise, surprise, religious people are bad too. And his point is that everybody's bad and God saves bad people because bad people are all that there are. And that's what Paul is getting us to here in Romans 2. So let's kind of follow his line of thought here in Romans 2, 1 through 5 and go through the text here, verse by verse, as is our custom. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, putting themselves in this self-righteous position as judge, you practice the very same things. They're involved in the same types of sins and behavior. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, the things they're condemning the Gentiles for. This is probably like a Pharisee mindset right here, like in the Jewish leadership, like a self-righteous form of Judaism that was around in the first century. Do you suppose, and as in Christianity today, I mean, not the book or the articles, but I mean like the Christians today. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you think you're any better off, he's saying? You're going to be judged if you don't trust in Christ and, and humble yourself. You think you're self-righteous. You're not going to escape that judgment. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. The Jews had a special place in God's heart. He chose them out of all the people and he gave them his law and his truth and his grace. And so he's saying this kindness that he was showing the Jewish people is not meant to harden them, but bring them to a, a, a gracious leading to trust in the one true God. And so he's saying, this is kind of upping the ante on you here. You should know better here. But because of your heart, so they have a hard heart and penitent, they don't, they're not repenting because of this heart. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath. How ironic. Romans 1 starts off with the wrath of God towards Gentiles, and the very same wrath is on these Jewish people, these religious people. And so the problem with Romans is the wrath of God, that we have sinned against an infinite being. We deserve an infinite punishment. And the solution is found in Romans 5, 7, that Jesus turns aside the wrath of God, that he died on the cross and turned aside that punishment. And so this wrath stored against these people can be abated or taken away by trusting in Jesus. And so wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, many people who have read just this portion of scripture in isolation have, have believed that this prevents people from judging altogether. And I wanna say, first of all, we all make judgments, whether we like it or not. Um, let me tell you if, you, if you know somebody, and I hope you don't, if you know somebody who's going around like murdering people, like a serial killer, I like I said, I hope you don't know somebody like that. If, if someone's going around like murdering, it's like an ax murderer, right? And selling crack to kids, I'm sorry, you're gonna say that's bad, right? I mean, you know, no matter how much you say don't judge, if someone's selling crack to kids and murdering people, there's gonna be some judgments made there. I mean, whether you like it or not. And if you still insist on saying that, uh, well, you shouldn't judge people, you know, you're judging that person. Well, you're judging that person for judging. So it's just kind of like this impossible thing. We can't avoid judging in some ways, in some fashion. Um, in fact, Jesus tells us if we do make a judgment, 
We have to do it properly, not in a self-righteous, kind of like, oh, I'm way better than you attitude, but we are to make judgments without being judgmental. And so this is what Jesus says in John 7, 24. He says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. So there's a right judgment we can make, a judgment drawing on evidence, not bias and truth, and evaluating someone's actions you know, to make decisions. We all do that on some level. It's inescapable and unavoidable. And Jesus is saying we are to do that. That's a legitimate thing. So then what kind of judgment here is is Paul condemning? Like, what's he talking about here? Um, and this is a type of judgment that is hypocritical and self-righteous, these kind of judgments. That's, I think when most people say don't judge, I think they're honestly thinking of that kind of judgment. They're thinking of like these sort of like, I'm better than you judgments. And this is a kind of judgment that always looks down on people, right? And so that you can look up about yourself. You know, you judge people, so like, oh, I'm, you need to talk bad about people and you look down at people so that you can really give yourself a little boost, you know, more out like, I'm not like that person. And this is the type of person who always thinks that they're doing the right thing no matter what. We've all met people like this and everybody else is doing it wrong. You're doing it the right way. Everybody else is a huge mess and they're all messed up, but I got it all right. I got it all figured out. And that's just false because... It's a newsflash here, but this is what Paul's, we're all messed up. So, so this is, so here is a clear example of like, I would call an hypocritical or self-righteous judgment. And it's like, oh, well, you know, I'm better than you because um, your kids ended up all messed up and my kids didn't, so I'm a better person. And the guy who's doing that is cheating on his wife. And so this is like a prime example. We see it all the time of like what self-righteous judgment looks like. And like I said, a person will pick out something, uh, like one thing that they do well and say, well, that's what makes me good is this one arbitrary thing I'm picking out. Maybe it's I pay my taxes. Maybe I'm nice to my neighbor. Maybe I help out the homeless. Maybe I do X, Y, and Z. And say so they pick out one thing and say, this is what makes me good. And then like around them, it's like a, it's like a, a moral minefield. It's like a moral collapse. They're not, they're not really, you know, being loving to their wife or being caring towards others. But, you know, maybe I pay my tithe, right? I've heard a lot of people say that, although, you know, um, that guy's a scumbag. He does not pay his tithe, but I pay my tithe, so I must be a great person. Even though to pay my tithe, I am ripping off people, you know? And so this, this is how it usually works. Judgmental people pick out one thing and they go with it, even though there's moral collapse around them. And so Paul's point in Romans 2 is that this is exactly how many of the religious Jews of his day thought. And he would know because he was a Pharisee, right? He was, uh, he was an adherent to Judaism, a Pharisee, and he saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life was transformed. And so... What Paul and those thought back then, before he was a Christian, was that if you do certain outward requirements, you follow certain food laws, you do certain things, then that makes you super good and righteous. It's not thought of so much as relationship with God or knowing him. It's not a matter of the heart. It's about doing outward acts of ceremonies that make you righteous before God. And they actually thought they could get into heaven and be good by being you know, faithful to these customs. And this was really much a works-based salvation. And that's what they kept. And that's, they kept these ceremonies and rituals and thought, I'm really a great guy. And the Jews of the first century, and we're going to read this in a second, had an us versus them mentality. And you see this with some 
people who would say that they're Christian, they would say like, well, we're not, you know, we're really good, we're Christian. We're not like those people out there. And so they had this us, them kind of combative uh, mindset and they were so self-righteous. And this is crazy. They were so self-righteous, they would not even share a meal with a Gentile. That was gauche, that was sinful, and that's why you see Peter stumbling in the book of Galatians and Paul kind of calling him out for that. And so, yeah, oh, I'm so good and pure, I can't even eat with this person. You know, that sounds very like, you know, kind of church lady, doesn't it, so far? And so when Paul is penning Romans 1 and 2, he's actually referencing a lot um, ancient Jewish literature of the time, the wisdom of Solomon, and he references chapter 14 in the first chapter and chapter 15 in the second chapter. He makes clear reference to it. And chapter 14 is like your Romans 1, it's like a Gentile bashing festival. And we're going to see how this works out. This is, this is kind of parallels Romans 1. And so the Jews reading Romans would have said, oh, this sounds familiar. This sounds like the wisdom of Solomon. And so Paul is referencing this, and he does this in order to kind of bait and switch and kind of trick them. So wisdom of Solomon 14, 22 through 26. Afterwards, it was not enough for them, the Gentiles, to err about the knowledge of God, but they lived in great strife due to ignorance, and they call such great evils peace. For whether they kill children in their initiations or celebrate secret mysteries or hold frenzy revels, with strange customs, they no longer keep either their lives or their marriage pure. But they're either treacherously killing one another or grieving one another by adultery. And all this is raging, riot of blood and murder, theft, deceit, corruption, faithlessness, tumult, perjury. Sounds a lot like Romans 1 when you read it. Confusion over what is good, forgetful Ness of favors, pollution of souls, sex perversion, disordered in marriage, adultery, and debauchery. Really reads like Romans 1, especially the end, the tail end of Romans 1. And so you can imagine the first century Jews reading this, like, yeah, that's right, you Gentiles. Look at you guys. You guys are so unrighteous, and I am so amazing and righteous. And then, uh, you know, you, that's kind of what happens here is you read Wisdom of Solomon 15, and that's kind of the flavor of it. It's like, the Jews are so righteous, and look at these awful Gentiles. And verse 2, it says, for even if this is, this is uh, 15, which talks about the righteousness of the Jews, for even when we sin, we are thine, we are yours, knowing thy power, but we will not sin, saying they're going to be sinless. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, because we know that we're accounted thine, for to know thee is complete righteousness, and to know thy power is a root of immortality, for neither has the evil intent of the human heart um, misled, misled us, nor the fruitlessness toil of, of painters, a figure stained with very colors. They're not going to fall for this idol worship. And so... You know, you have chapter 14 of Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 15, which kind of parallels Romans 1 and, 1 and, and Romans 2. And it's so interesting because the Jewish readers reading Romans would have been like, yeah, this is just going to be like the Wisdom of Solomon. He's going to talk about how dirty and awful the Gentiles are and then vindicate us as righteous. But Paul really gets them off guard here. He does a real bait and switch and does the exact opposite. He says, yeah, Gentiles are bad, but guess what? Everybody's bad. Jewish people are bad. There's no escape from this. And he says that they do the very same thing as the Gentiles. And so this would have enraged a first century reader of this text. Um, 
And you might say, well, golly, you know, I mean, how could he say they do the very same things? Like, I mean, they didn't live their lives like Gentiles. So what, what is Paul, what point is he making here? And you have to realize that what they believed was kind of like an outward ceremony. You do certain things and you have outward righteousness. And then, you know, God gives you the thumbs up. You're good to go. Um, kind of like you just act robotically and get in the right, your, your body in the right parts and you get everything all ordered, ordered in your life outwardly where everybody thinks you're great. And then you know what? God's like, oh yeah, you're righteous, of course. But when you read Jesus, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, you see something differently. Jesus puts it in the heart. He's like, yeah, okay. You guys may have not committed outward adultery, but look at your heart. You've committed adultery of the heart. You may have not done these things outwardly, but inwardly, it's a tomb. He calls them whitewashed tombs. And so this is what the law says. We're to love the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's not just an outward act. It's inward. And so from an inward spiritual perspective, they're guilty of the very same things. And when you kind of combine that with the fact that God gave them all this grace and all this revelation, and they totally threw it by the white wayside, that makes the offense even greater. And when you think that they were trying to earn their salvation by thinking they were just gonna conform to some outward laws that the Pharisees made up, that they were gonna somehow make God satisfied by their obedience, like that did not check out. That was against the Old Testament teaching. And so, yeah, outward obedience does not work. Um, and if you think about it, um, the times I have kept the speed limit, which, you know, happens sometimes. I'm not saying, you know, I tell you that. So like, if I ever like cut you off and I speed past you, there's my pastor, you know, kind of thing. So, you know, sometimes I can drive fast. I'm from Southern California. Give me a break, right? No, I'm just kidding. But the times I have obeyed the speed limit, I don't do it because I'm like, oh, I really care about the law. I'm like, I don't want to get a, I don't want to get a ticket. And, you know, I'm kind of driving by the city council thing and there's cops right there. You know, I don't want to get pulled over. Right. I'm not thinking, well, I want to do this because I really want to obey the law and be a law abiding citizen. Is that mentality any better than the, you know, the 18 year old who wants to have the thrill of his life? Doesn't care if he gets a ticket because you know how teenagers are. They really think ahead. So they just want to have a thrill and break the law. Is that any morally better? Of course not. No, you're just checking off boxes and you're doing it for the wrong heart's intention. And so believing the lie that you are righteous when you're just as bad as everybody else is actually worse. And that's Paul's point is you do the very same things and you judge others. And as I said, we need to understand the greatest enemies of Paul and Jesus were not the immoral people struggling, the drunkard in the street, the, the prostitute. No, the biggest enemies of Paul and Jesus were religious people. I think we forget that. And so people that are like the church lady are one of the biggest threats to Christianity because they think that it's their righteousness they're banking on making them good, but they're not really having a true heart relationship with God. They're not resting on his grace and mercy. See, the only thing that is going to get you to God is not your righteousness, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ, a righteousness outside of you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is why one of the greatest enemies of Christianity is not so much unbelievers who happen to be moral train wrecks, though we all are, but it's self-righteousness. Jesus does not call the immoral Gentiles a brood of vipers. He calls religious people, self-righteous religious people, a brood of vipers. And Jesus does not uh, condemn the immoral people for begging for forgiveness. He condemns the self-righteous people. He condemns them to hell. 
for looking down on people. And this, you see this in Luke um, 18, 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. See, they're trusting in themselves that they're good. Self, that's like the definition of self-righteousness. And treated others with contempt. So when you're self-righteous, you look down on others. You're a contemptuous person. You, you view people in, with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors were viewed in the worst possible light because they were viewed as thieves and someone who took off the top, basically, of the Roman tax. So basically like someone who steals money. And the Pharisee was, of course, thought of the religious guy, right? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adultery, or even like this tax collector. See, looking down on people all the time. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I can get. People think that today. If you just give money to a church, oh, well, you know, you must be a really good person. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus flips it here. These cultural expectations they had back then, you know, oh, the religious people go to heaven and you know, Gentiles and dogs and these tax collectors, they all go to hell. He flips it here, just like we need to flip in our culture, in our Christian culture. It's the self-righteous who are not really righteous, but people uh, who are in that category, they're bad and they're deceiving themselves. You can't get into heaven by being good or even thinking that you're good, but only by Jesus being good for you. And so God has mercy and kindness and forgiveness on those willing to admit their sin and their wickedness, to find and seek mercy and forgiveness in him. And that's why you see in the New Testament, you see Paul and Jesus hitting this point obsessively over and over again. And in one case, it is really shocking. You have Jesus surrounded by these smug, self-righteous leaders. And then as they would say, the lady of the night, or as someone who's a bit older would say, I've heard people say this, the oldest profession. We know what that means. They're all looking down on her. They're being self-righteous and they're making cruel remarks. Oh, well, Jesus, if you were really a prophet, you would know what kind of lady that is. You wouldn't give her the time of day. But Jesus knew who she was and he forgives her of all of her sins and saves her soul while this like, crazy scene of just religious people scoffing at him. And what's crazy is that Jesus goes on later on to call them a brood of vipers. He goes on to say that they're children of hell. And so it's ironic here. The, the prostitute gets grace and love and forgiveness, but the religious leaders, he tells them they're children of hell. This is Jesus here. Not so gentle and mild there, is he, on these, these religious leaders? And so this woman comes with faith, faith, trust, and humility to Jesus, and her sins are forgiven. And self-righteous people, they can't do that because they, they can't come in humility because they think they're just so amazing. They think their stuff does not stink. And this is what Jesus says to this woman who you know, doesn't you know, have any religious background and, and you know, lived her life of sin. And he just destroys these classical categories of the us versus them. And, oh, you've got the immoral people over here and we're the righteous people. Luke 7, 45 through 50. He says to uh, the woman of the night, you gave me no kiss, 
but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. So the religious leaders are not giving him any homage, any humility to Jesus, the son of God, the eternal God. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, not a few sins, she's a train wreck, like we really all are, which are many are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to, to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? He's God, Jesus is God. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She is saved. I love, I was reading one pastor this week and he said this. He says, Jesus tells the religious leaders to learn from a weeping prostitute, not the other way around. And the reason why Jesus does this is because the focus of the Christian faith is not your good works, not your discipline, not your devotion, not your morality. The focus of the Christian faith is Jesus who died for your immorality. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I don't want to know anything else but Jesus Christ and him crucified because that's the focus of our faith is Jesus and what he's done for us. And that is why the greatest enemy of the gospel is self-righteousness because if you are self-righteous, then you don't need Christ's righteousness. You don't need him to die for your unrighteousness. And this is why self-righteous people do not like the gospel. They hate it. All they want is a to-do list, sermons on rules, 15 ways to make your, your marriage better. You know, they spend more time on what would Jesus do rather than what Jesus has done for us. They want messages on how good people can get better. See, the church is not a hospital for sinners if that's the case. It becomes a country club for the self-righteous. And all the while, the broken prostitute and the alcoholic feeling trampled on by these rules and to-do lists, all they want to hear is about Jesus and the message of grace and love that he has for us. All they want to hear is the gospel. They don't need to hear how good people can get better. They need to hear how God can bring dead people to life and the mercies of God in Christ. You see, God's office is not at the top of a staircase. It's not the top of a ladder. God's office is at the end of your rope when you have nothing else to cling to but Jesus Christ and him crucified that destroys all self-righteousness. And so a Christian that gets the gospel can never be like the church lady. A person who gets the gospel realizes they're a mess. They're a complete, open, gaping train wreck and they need Jesus constantly. And so we can't look down and play church games, look down on people because that person has that problem or whatever. We're all, we all have problems. We all got them. Um, mine was screaming in the back during worship. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I have problems too. He gets it from his dad. I mean, I could never go to Sunday school growing up in, in, in church. It was like PTSD. So I've I passed on to my son. It's really my sin, okay? I don't want to be self-righteous here. Um, Paul, who is most uh, considered to be one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, had the exact opposite attitude of self-righteousness and of the religious leaders of his day. What does he say in Romans 7? He's talking about his struggle with sin. He's very transparent and open about this. And at the end of his struggle, he just screams out in agony, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the next breath, he says, thanks be to God. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. No shame, no guilt. At the end of his life, 
spent his entire time planting churches, being beaten, stoned, put in prison, beaten for the gospel. He doesn't say at the end of his life, you know, I am so, I'm an amazing guy. I'm an amazing missionary. I just do such wonderful things. I'm terrific and wonderful. Everybody else is a complete disaster. He doesn't say that. This is the words of an old dying man who has spent his life sacrificing for Jesus, who would go on to give his life for Jesus, being killed by Nero Caesar. This is what he says at the end of his life. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Not past tense in Greek. In the Greek language, it's not like saying, oh, I once was really bad, now I'm a really terrific person. That's not what it's saying. It's saying in the present tense, he is the foremost. He is the chief of sinners presently. He is the most immoral person he knows. He does not think he is good. He does not think he is self-righteous at the end of his life. He says he is the chief. We're talking about Paul here, who was whipped and beaten for the gospel. He says he is the chief of people who are immoral. Now, this statement, understandably, has confused you know, people and scholars. Uh, why would the most godliest guy in human history, uh, who literally bled for the gospel, why would he say he is the worst guy that he knows? And I think when you think about it and we reflect upon our own hearts, it is not difficult, that difficult to figure out. You see, Paul knew his mind, he knew his thoughts better than anybody else. And so when you know yourself, you can really say in the present tense right now, you are the chief of sinners. And we know that's true. We know it's true. I'd be willing to bet I said this before, but if we were to play a tape and all your friends and family, people you knew from church ever, you know, they played what you thought just for one day. Just give us one day. You'd want to leave town. You'd want to leave the state when they know what you're thinking about things because it is messed up. We're all messed up. Even during communion, you know what I'm talking about. We all, you know, it's, people say, you know, I always have weird thoughts during communion. Yeah, I know because we need grace and our sinful hearts are crying out. We're all sinful train wrecks. We all know it. To deny it is just denying reality that we have horrible things going on in our heads sometimes when we're driving down the freeway, especially. Um, and people don't know how to drive here, right? You think something, I mean, you know, someone could just cut you off and immediate thought comes to your mind. You know what I'm talking about. We all do it. Now, look, I mean, he's saying this of himself. He's a chief of sinners. And this is hard for us to hear. This is a difficult message for people who are steeped in self-righteousness, who think they're really good. People raised in the church will say, yes, Nate, but aren't Christians better in some ways? I mean, come on, Nate, give me a break. We, you know, we have to be different as Christians, salt and light, you know, be a salt light, be a light to the world, you know? This is the light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. I mean, I was taught that in Sunday school, Nate, that's gotta be true. And it is true that while Christians do live differently, not perfectly, but differently, and that our lives are transformed by the grace of Jesus, we are not the ones who's bringing transformation to our lives. The only reason why I live differently and not perfectly, never perfectly, isn't because I am good, it's because God is good. It's because of his grace, his mercy. So as a Christian, I have no right to be self-righteous or brag about myself, but the only person I wanna brag about is Jesus Christ and him crucified. His righteousness, not mine. His mercy, his goodness, not mine. His grace for me. I love the way that... Um, the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it so well. The Christian is not a good man. 
He is a vile wretch who has been saved by the grace of God. Like the hymn, Amazing Grace, how great, this, how great the grace that saved a wretch like, like me, saved us, we were, well, we're wretches. Um, I remember uh, that the Biola Choir was gonna sing that at a church and the church was like a positive thinking church. It was one of those churches where you could never talk about um, sinning ever. You'd always have to have like positive thoughts like a fortune cookie, you know? And, uh, and the Biola Choir was, was gonna sing there and the pastor says, no, don't say wretch, that's too negative. You can't say amazing great, how grace the sound that saved a wretch like me. You can't say that. He was just protesting, getting all mad. And so, you know, Biola is a great university, great school. I went there. Um, no, I'm just kidding. And um, so the choir's like, we're not singing here. See you later. You know, because that is what Christians believe, that we are not good. We are wretches. And we are still, even though we're changed, we are still tainted with the sin and imperfection in the sight of God. Even when we do good things, there's still filthy rags. This is what the prophet Isaiah He's not talking about unbelievers out there. He's talking about Christians. He's saying we. He's talking about people who believe and follow God. This is what he says. We, not them, we have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You don't, know what, you don't want to know what that means in Hebrew. You can look it up sometime. Um, it's a very vile expression of filthiness. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Our best works are like filthy rags. Our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So even when we do the right thing, our actions are never 100% perfect such that it can pass the bar of God's perfect, all-knowing judgment. So we can't be self-righteous even when we do do good things like feeding and helping the homeless. Because we're always thinking in the back of our heads like, wow, I'm such a good person for doing this. I've done that all the time. You know, you do something like, I'm, I'm a pastor and I'm helping people. I feel so good about myself. And there's like selfish thoughts going, you know, come on, don't look at me like that. You all know you do that. We all do that, right? Um, pastor Nate is not alone. Don't, don't gaslight me here, okay? Um, <laughs> We, we know we have thoughts like, oh, I feel so good. I'm so good to helping these people. I'm such an amazing person, you know? And so, yeah, we don't do anything 100%, 100% perfectly before God. And so people say, well, gosh, then what's the point of trying? Like, why, why even try to serve God if we can't do it perfectly? Like, shouldn't we just all just give up and be a failure pile in a sadness bowl? Is that what should happen? Because we can't do anything right? Well, with the thought process here, process of a small child who gives their parent a colored picture. Uh, I'm sure all of you uh, have kids that are just amazing artists, right? That are two and three and four years old. You know that the picture that you get from your kid is far from perfect, isn't it? And so the thought process of a child is, I love my father and I wanna give him this gift because I love him. And I know that this picture is gonna bring joy and happiness to my father, seeing what he did, seeing my work, what I've done, it's gonna bring joy to the father. And that's all the child is thinking when they're giving you this sweet little gift. Hopefully they're not trying to bribe you for more TV or something, but you know, they're, hopefully they're, they have pure intentions, right? That's what they're thinking. They're thinking, I wanna bring joy to my father's heart. Now, when Abigail and Kenny give me uh, pictures, they, they, they're in the stage now where it's gotten even worse. Like I get like five pictures a day 
And I think it's because I give them such compliments and I can be very you know, verbose, as you all know. And so I give all these you know, compliments and praises when they, oh, this is an amazing picture, Abigail, or Kenny, I can't believe you drew this. Oh, you know, and come on, the lines are never perfectly drawn. They're always like, you know, squiggles out here and everything. Don't tell them I said that. Hopefully Kenny's not listening in the back. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not thinking about the mistakes they made. I'm just happy that they're giving me a gift and that they're my kid. I'm not thinking a bit about any imperfections they've made. And I, I don't want it to be perfect. I don't, I don't expect it to be perfect. I'd rather, yeah, I don't expect it to be perfect because they're my kids. But I, I love that I get that gift from them. And it really warms my heart and it brings me so much happiness and joy. And that is true of God and us. God accepts our imperfect works in Christ because he loves us. And we are his kids. And so because of this truth, we do things for God, you know, and we show love and joy for him, even though it's not perfect. We should never be arrogant because it, it's not about being perfect. It's about having a relationship with God and loving and serving him. And even when we do good works, those good works are powered by grace. They're not come from us. They're God's grace working in us. So we can never be self-satisfied, never self-righteous. A Christian has no grounds whatsoever for self-righteousness, all from the grace of God and God's love for us in Jesus Christ. And so we as Christians, we should be the last people on the earth to be self-righteous. Rather, we should recognize that we're broken and we need Jesus every second of every day. I love how John Newton captures this so well, the Christian perspective on life, who is a hymn writer of Amazing Grace. He, uh, he was a slave trader and he repented of that and came to Christ. He says, I'm not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But, but still, I'm not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's every Christian's perspective to destroy self-righteousness, and to only depend on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.